Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. My guest today is Dr. Nora Volkow, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA. Dr. Volkow's work has been instrumental in demonstrating that drug addiction is a disease of the human brain. As a research psychiatrist and scientist, Dr. Volkow pioneered the use of brain imaging to investigate the toxic effects and addictive properties of abusable drugs. Her studies have documented changes in the dopamine system affecting, among others, the functions of the frontal brain regions involved in motivation, drive, and pleasure in addiction. She also has made important contributions to the neurobiology of obesity, ADHD, and aging. Dr. Volkow has spent most of her professional career at the Department of Energy's Brookhaven National Laboratory in Upton, New York, where she held several leadership positions, including the Director of Nuclear Medicine, Chairman of the Medical Department, and Associate Director for Life Sciences. In addition, Dr. Volkow was a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and an associate dean of the medical school at the State University of New York, Stony Brook. Dr. Volkow has published more than 680 peer-reviewed articles and has written more than 100 book chapters and non-peer-reviewed manuscripts and has also edited four books on neuroimaging for mental and addictive disorders. So, Dr. Volkow, welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me here. Okay, you bet. So you've just completed a just uh, unbelievable presentation here at the National Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta, and you covered so much ground, uh, so much valuable information with the work that you're doing. Um, I'd like to maybe start by digging in on some of the takeaways from that. Over the course of the last year, I think NIDA has made some great strides, so maybe we start there. Yeah, no, we, in the area of the whole science uh, that relates to drugs and addiction, we've made enormous advances. So, for example, now we understand what are the changes in the brain of someone that has been exposed to drugs that leads them to the loss of control over their um, behavior in a way that puts them at risk. And ultimately, as we're seeing right now with the opioid crisis, leads to their death. And that has always been very difficult to explain and understand because you cannot justify the risking everything that you've got in order just to get high, particularly when actually the concept of getting high on when someone becomes addicted is not even any longer pleasurable. Is this like trying to escape of a, sta- a state of horrible distress and fear and depression? an isolation that leads people to take these drugs. So there's nothing really fun about it nor glamorous about it, but we couldn't understand it. So everybody just assumed, well, it is because the drug, the person is choosing to take the drug because they want to have a, a good time. 
Now we know much more. And as a result of that knowledge, of course, that changes. And one would want to communicate this so that people realize that a person that's addicted is not doing them to get uh, it's lying, not because they want to lie to you, but it's part of the disease. And the important component of it is to try to help that person rather than ostracize them. So that is at the level of what is the impact uh, of what we can say of those that may have a relative or a friend that is suffering from addiction, the notion that this is not something that they are voluntarily doing. From the perspective of us as an agency, this knowledge can help us identify new medications, new treatment, improve recovery, uh, also help identify who may be at greater risk. Because if we know already that certain structures or processes in the brain are not working properly, uh, that are then linked, you make you more vulnerable to loss of control. Of course, we can also do interventions to prevent, because that's another important message that uh, we need to give uh, to the whole country in at the face of this crisis that uh, addiction can be prevented and should be prevented and and of course um, everybody is different each one of us is different in many ways we're genetically different but we're also different in that we are born in very different environments and some environments are uh, more make you more vulnerable to take drugs and get exposed and become addicted um, although you, you may be born in a very protective uh, environment that gives you a lot of resilience but you may have the genetics that makes you particularly vulnerable. So there's many different risk factors that are involved, and now we're kind of homing in on those, and, and we have those better publicized, and we recognize what those are. Is that about right? Yeah, we, we recognize, and actually we've known uh, some of the factors that makes you actually more vulnerable. So if you are born into a, an environment of a lot of social deprivation and neglect, that makes you at higher risk of experimenting with drugs and becoming addicted. And we're trying to identify which are the genes that make you actually a higher, higher vulnerability. And there are some genes that have started to be identified. Dr. Volkow talks about identifying addiction genes with a word of caution. Yeah, no, it is exciting, but you have to also understand the way that we these genes are telling us that the vulnerability comes to you is by influencing the way that you respond to an environment. So if you have a gene that makes you much more sensitive to adverse environments, Mm -hmm. That makes you vulnerable to addiction, but it's indirectly. So you have the gene and you are born into a very good environment, then you may not end up with addiction. It's the combination of the genetic and the adverse environments that then results in the addiction. So, so genes, sure. what they are doing is in the brain, affecting the way that you respond to an environment, you relate to others, the way that you solve your own conflicts and you come up with solutions. I mean, genes, in a way, uh, settle a certain level of sensitivity and reactivity, but we're going to be uh, responding to an environment. So you may have genes that are make you very vulnerable, but then you have a, a very protective environment that may help you buffer it. Mm. But then there are there are certain situations where, and you see it because parents will tell you. I mean, we we have several children, uh, all of them did very well, and we gave them exactly the same environment, and one did not. And so there you have the environment was the same. But then you have a genetic that was different because not all the children uh, inherit the same genes. And also there is an element of randomness on the environment. So if you hit the wrong friend that exposes you to drug and the other kids sure. don't, then that, uh, there are all of these multiple factors playing. So from that perspective, what you want to say is with this knowledge and understanding that, that these complex interactions that can result in addiction, what do we do? And there, that's why I always say prevention. And what is it that we can do as prevention? 
prevention. I think one of the most powerful things to do prevention is the social ties, the family ties, and and making parents aware uh, to help them recognize, actually they may pro- be providing a very uh, loving environment to their children and adolescent, and and still those kids, they can never be completely uh, complacent and says, that's not going to happen to my kid. The message is it can happen to any kid. And so parents should be ready uh, to recognize when there may be changes in their son or daughter that may be indicative that um, their child may be getting into trouble. And at the same time, also be very aware because I, I think that parents that have live with a child that has become uh, addicted or had problems with addiction also but will tell you, but they don't want any help. They are actually rejecting us. Mm-hmm. So, so also the ability to generate uh, patterns of support that when the initially the, the the family cannot come close, that there may be other means to buffer and protect that individual. So the aspect of protection is fundamental in the whole epidemic that we're living in, or any addiction. We have to highlight prevention, prevention, prevention. And that's certainly a, a huge social challenge still because of the stigma. Families want to self, they want to insulate everything. They want to, you know, when they find out that there's an issue there with their loved one, they want to kind of keep it closed. Yeah, yes, it it's is. It is an, an incredible challenge. Also, I mean, it is also the sense that we all become very self-confident and the concept, this is not going to happen to me. This is typical. And it's all, it relates to anything in medicine. You sort of says, no, it's not going to happen to me. There is this sense of invulnerability. So if in your family, you've never had a, an instance of addiction, you just still, it's not going to happen to us. And, and, and I think that because all of these situations are so, so prevalent. I, I said definitively coming from a family where there has been addiction, I've always been sensitized to it. Uh, but I've also been in environments or in conditions where you've never been exposed to a particular uh, disease process. So you say, no, it's not going to happen. We don't have the genes. Well, the genes may have never had a chance to emerge until now. I think most people think in terms of the addiction gene and either you have it or you don't, it's all or none. But Dr. Volkow makes it clear that it's not that simple. We need to exactly recognize that and and try to break that stigma. I mean, addiction is a disease and, and basically most teenagers experiment with drugs and yet most teenagers will not end up addicted. Unfortunately, 10% may. And it again depends on 10% yeah. will. That's mm-hmm. ultimately mm-hmm. when you get exposed to drugs. And that's more or less the percentage of people that have a problem with addiction in our country. Mm-hmm. So it's a large number. You cannot dismiss it, but you also cannot dismiss that a very significant number of people that do get exposed to drugs will not become addicted to it. And that in a way has led people to this sense of overconfidence and to the blame into the person because they may have seen themselves as drinking or taking a joint or not, but then they say, oh no, I took care of it. No problem. Without recognizing that every person is different and their own experience cannot necessarily be projected into the other. So the idea of also highlighting the importance of tailoring interventions, the importance of of personalized interventions, but also that recognition, again, bringing it back to the prevention, that there's no value in blaming someone. It doesn't help anything. It just stigmatizes. And that person, therefore, is going to feel ashamed themselves 
and much less likely to go and seek help. And the families are going to become silent. And they're not going to be, uh, I mean, in that silence, they may miss the opportunity of seeking up advice from others that may be able to help. So, and I understand why some families will want to be silent. And I, again, in my own family, even though they know that I'm in, in the addiction field, I leave myself that, that silence and that stigma, not wanting to speak up. And it was hard for me to understand why not, but, but I respect it. At the same time, I do believe that educating people about the value of speaking up, that this is what we need to do in order to destroy that stigma. If we don't speak up, it's very easy to silence all, to say there's no problem. And, and that's the way that addiction has been dealt for for decades and decades and decades. And, and we have to change it. And that's starting to change. People starting to speak up, just, just like you're starting to speak up on your own experience with your son. And I value that and I applaud it. And I, I think it's important for others to recognize that it's painful, that it's not easy to speak up. But by doing that, you will be able to help others. So many people um, in recovery, my son included, um, self-isolate. Yes. So it seems to be a natural tendency. Um, and I think that families such as ours, and I'm sure hundreds of thousands probably out there, um, they miss that. They, they miss that fact that that's, that's a big red flag. So can you speak to that issue and, and perhaps how a family might be able to reach out to their loved one when they see that? And what, what warning bells should go off in their heads when they see a situation like that. Yeah, no, and I, again, and again, it's just how can a parent recognize that something may be going on? And one of the first things is that there is changes in behavior. So you know your kid, and then all of a sudden you say, well, he's acting strange. He's no longer doing the things that he used to love very much. Uh, his whole patterns of everyday routine are changed. Um, he used to love to go out with his friends. He's no longer doing it. He's actually spending more and more time isolated. He doesn't seem to in feel happiness or enjoyment. He's extremely irritable. You cannot even speak with him and he acts out. Yes. So, and, and the problem, sorry to jump in here. The, the problem there is, is the parents are almost backed off. So how do you break through that? Because the parents are afraid. They are afraid of reacting like that. And, 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 and one of the aspects is to actually not be judgmental. And, and one of the things that I would say to the parents, if you can actually train yourself not to act emotionally, because what happens is even very well-intentioned parents, there's a point that I said, I had enough. I've reached my limit. Mm -hmm. And, and what they need to understand is in the addiction that changes in the brain are actually disrupting all of the processes that in our brain enable us to socialize, to be part of communities. So you've damaged them. So the reactions that you normally expect from someone in a social interaction are no longer there. And that, of course, makes it up very hard for a parent. Because if uh, your kid is lying to you, if your kid doesn't pay any attention to the things that are important to you, doesn't want to spend any time with you, reacts negatively, of course, our brain is made to react to that. But in this case, you have to set yourself back and realize that the way that your kid is responding to you reflects uh, changes in the brain that are making him or her not to really be herself. 
So he's acting with a change that if he it didn't occur, would, wouldn't you wouldn't be observing that behavior. So, so you need to use that information to try to minimize your negative emotional reaction. Next, Dr. Volkel talks about the danger in the conventional wisdom of letting someone hit rock bottom before they get help. Every person has a different perspective. And in my perspective and in my experience in terms of where the evidence show, I do not believe on um, hitting rock bottom. And I think that if anything, I mean, my, one of my fears is that I've heard too many, too many parents actually following that advice to let their, their kid uh, reach bottom and the kid dies. And so, I mean, and then it's irreversible. Yeah, so I, I mean, mean that's out there, and and that's really just a, a bad, I think, general understanding, common knowledge that's kind of out there, and I think they also call it tough love, and um, the problem that is that in the tough that doesn't make sense. No, because in the tough love, what you're also going to do is going to isolate that person that needs help and needs the support. And the greater the isolation, the greater the devastation. So what you see in the, the concept of addiction is that the person, by isolating themselves, by losing the, all of the things that in the past made them excited and having to rely more and more and more on this drug, they actually to lose the, they start to lose the love for life. And so, and, and you hear this and many individuals say, I mean, I'm taking the drug and, and many times I wish I couldn't wake up. So, so if you isolate that person more, you're going to accelerate that sense of despair and distress. You know, I lost my grandfather, who I never met, who, who had a problem with alcoholism, out of suicide because he actually just became hopeless and helpless. And there was this stigmatization and this, this uh, inability of not knowing where to go. And in distress and that, so I, I don't believe on hit bottom. I believe on helping others and we have a disease and it's treatable. So what the challenge is that is many people suffering from addiction don't want that treatment or they at least are not aware that they want that treatment. And part of it is also because the treatment, the way that the treatment is presented to them is again with that whole weight of stigma. And many of the treatments actually say also that that whole philosophy of you have to suffer to the treatment process. No. So you're bringing us to 12 step and abstinence. Can you speak to that? Well, again, you know, we in the addiction field have taken a very polarized perspective that we don't have in other areas of medicine. It's either one thing or the other. So it's either medication and nothing else, or you do to never take a medication. It's continue taking drugs. Well, no, it's not continue to take drugs. Medicine have very different characteristics and enable the person to actually uh, balance and recover uh, many of the changes that drugs have made that lead them to this intense craving and relapse. So yes, medications help. And yes, behavioral interventions help. And for some of them, group therapy helps. And for some of them, 12 steps help. But they don't need to be done in isolation. And in fact, what uh, the, the evidence shows is that being able to tailor an interventions on the basis of the need of the individual, and which means multiple treatment options, is what ultimately increases the likelihood of a person being able to recover. It's not one or the other. It's an integrated care. And I, and I want to, again, highlight this. In cancer, 
We don't give one chemotherapeutic agent. In the treatment of HIV, we don't with uh, one antiretroviral therapy. We combine them. Why? Because we get the best responses and we treat them aggressively. Addiction is a very serious illness with a high mortality rate. 10% of individuals in that end up with an overdose in an emergency department, I mentioned that today in my talk, mm-hmm. yep. will be dead in one year. I mean, mortality rate is very, very high. We need to treat aggressively, and that means multiple treatments, not just one or the other, because in my experience, uh, people very well-intentioned, for them it works. But one end does not mean reality. And we actually, unfortunately, have lost already too many individuals that would have benefit from access to medication because they ended up in programs where those were not given. Or they end up in programs where they say, oh, this is a magical pill, it's going to cure you. It's not going to cure you. It's going to help you and increase your chances of recovery and minimize relapse. But you do need that integrated uh, treatment and you do need that involvement of your community. It's, it's, It's a disease that you, by engaging those that are close to the person, it will increase the likelihood that that person will be able to succeed in recovery. This industry, the treatment industry, is a huge, huge industry. I don't know how many billions of dollars, yeah. but many billions of dollars. And um, it, along with that big money is the possibility of being exploited. Many people get exploited in this. Many families get exploited in their you know, time of crisis there. How does a family avoid that? Yeah, and it's a, it's a terrible thing because, you know, as a family member, you want to do and you don't know where to turn out. So one of our priorities in terms of the whole move as we are deploying um, strategies for the treatment of opioid use disorder and opioid addiction or other addictions is the importance of starting to generate uh, measures to actually evaluate the quality of care of treatment programs such that you do for any other part of medicine. So if you're going to have a surgical procedure, you can actually go into the web and Google where are the hospitals that have the best outcomes in the surgery that you're going to have. And you can select then which system you want to go for treatment. The same thing with cancer. You can select on the basis of the track record. Mm -hmm. We don't have that for addiction and we should have it. Next, Dr. Volkow talks about being able to look up ratings for addiction recovery service providers, just like you would a heart surgeon. Yeah. So these metrics are going to be based on the two components of them. One of them is there is significant uh, research that has determined what are the necessary programs that are indispensable for a treatment to be able to be successful based on the evidence that has been garnered from the clinical trials research going on. What are those elements? And so you can determine a given particular program Uh, to what extent it has all of the elements or a certain percentage or those that don't have any. For example, we know that all of the treatment programs should be able to provide with medication-assisted therapy. And ideally, not just limited to one, ideally provide the different alternatives because there's not one treatment for which every person responds. Vivitrol, methadone, Or or buprenorphine. They also should have the recognition that um, one month, three months, six months is not enough. They have to provide continuity of care. So one month, six months, not enough. So in in terms of medication assisted treatment. 
Correct. Oh, and also the support that you may need. And it's mm -hmm. like with cancer. When you go for treatment of cancer, there's very aggressive treatment initially. And then as you progress in that treatment, the, the need for you to continuously be taking the same medication, the chemotherapy sended, but you then still need to be follow up and evaluated periodically to ensure there's no relapse. And in the case of addiction or in the case of depression or any of the other diseases, many of the chronic diseases, you continue the medication treatment and you evaluate patients periodically with the support that they need. And the longer they've been in the detoxified and in recovery, the less frequent those interventions go. But you have to have that continuity of care. Do you have a metric for that timeline? It varies from person to person. We do know that the best outcomes actually are provided by treatment that provides support for at least five years. There are the ones where we see the greatest success and where, again, the other component to it is not just the medication, but the engagement and the involvement of the community system to support in their sobriety. That's where we get basically a success rate of almost greater than 90%. So you can achieve that level of success with a continuous care model that has that community support system. And so this is observed specifically in, in uh, doctors who become addicted to drugs where the community system of the medical healthcare providers actually helps them support them throughout. And that model of care in that uh, very well-controlled system is trying to now be emulated by by other and, and other professions where you also have that level of, of system of care. So we need to understand from that how we uh, deploy it into other treatment programs. So we want to have, we're demanding, and I was saying one of them is the characteristic, the evidence base. But the other thing that we want to generate is um, the experience of the patients and the family. So that there is a place where you can go and read uh, the what the parents or the the patient that went to the treatment program, their experience was. So, and I and I was discussing this. If I can go, I'm going to go to, um, the, let's say, to Alaska. And I've never been to Alaska. I want to see which hotel should I stay. I can Google and find out and I yeah. read the experience yeah. and that makes me choose. Mm -hmm. So generated metrics for treatment programs where you can evaluate them on the basis of the evidence and also on the basis of the patient's experiences. The reviews. Reviews. Yeah. And so that is open and anyone can look at it and that will then, of course, put pressure on the treatment programs to improve. Because if you don't make anybody accountable, you have a person going in there one month then they get uh, the, their fee and then they let them go and there's no accountability. Well, why would they want to improve? They are making a lot of money. So we need to ask for a high quality evidence base and to have metrics that will allow uh, anyone to evaluate it. And we have to make this public. This is one of the big moves that we're trying to facilitate happen. What kind of timeline do you see for rolling this out? Well, we have actually partnered with this with the Addiction Policy Forum, which is the uh, which brings the families together mm -hmm. to actually for them to be a very active partner I'm in a helping state chair this. In Ohio. Good, good, bravo. I actually, because it is that movement that's going to make it happen for the families and the parents to actually generate that system like Yelp, where they actually can have that information that guides you where to go. Yeah. Well, Doctor, I want to thank you for your time. Any last comments for uh, for our listeners? 
Well, I think that, I mean, what I like to basically end up is by saying that addiction is a disease. It is a disease that affects the brain. And if it affects it in a way that actually directly interfere with the ability of the person to recognize that they have a disease that they need help um, until it's very late many times. And it also interferes with their ability um, of interacting with others. And yet one of the most important uh, strengthening elements that we can give to that per person is that support that social support and that in active in engagement of all of us to make them aware that they need treatment and to facilitate their ability and their motivation to go to treatment. And once they are in treatment, to help them to sustain and be compliant with it, to give them that support. Well, thank you, Doctor. You're very really welcome. Appreciate it. We've been visiting today with Dr. Nora Volkow, who is the director of NIDA and a difference maker in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.